Good morning, everyone. If you want to go ahead and take your seats and grab some Bibles. Um, if you did not bring a Bible, which always makes me feel bad because I never do, but I believe, and I know where they are because I always need to use them, the bookshelves for the Bibles are right on these walls. Is that right? And so just like get up, disturb things for just a second, go grab one and come sit down. We're going to be talking to, oh, I forgot to say who I am. Sorry. Um, I like to dive right in. I have so much to tell you. Um, Tim introduced me really well. So that's about it. I'm Becky Jossberger. Um, probably one of the most exciting things in our lives right now is that we've um, found a new church home. And that's, <laughs> Rachel, thank you. That's here at Mosaic. And um, we loved our old church home as well. Uh, we just felt like God was doing something and stirring something up, and we had no idea what it was. And Maya's been here for about two and a half years. And we have loved watching her plug in here. But as parents, watching your child step out on their own for the very first time, you don't want to go crash their party. You want to let them be. And um, so we would come and kind of sit right back in that corner and watch her lead worship. And oh, there's nothing better on a Sunday morning. Nothing. Um, And then after a little while, she said, hey, Mom and Dad, why aren't you guys coming here? And she happened to say it in the presence of Tim, so he jumped on board too. And uh, I feel like we're still really new. I feel that especially looking out at the first service crowd, because we don't get up this early on Sundays. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> um, so I don't know a lot of you, but I look forward to getting to know more of you. Um, yeah. I could go on and on, but I'm just dying to get past the introduction and tell you about the text. (laughs) I have been uh, teaching scripture and studying scripture. I tried to count it up last night, and it depends where you start. Like, do you start at birth? Do you start at, you know, so I'm going to start with the graduation of high school. I graduated in 92. One weird quirk you'll learn about me as I share more and more, I love age. So in my mind, I'm still way too young, so I don't care if anyone knows how old I am, I'm still getting there. Um, So I graduated high school in 92, and since that time, I have spent one, not quite full, year not in school. Yes. So if I look at all cool, underneath this is just raw geek. (laughs) Just absolutely. Um, But in all of that time and in all of that study, there are some things I thought I might have figured out by now. And in fact, they're the things that are still the very most confusing to me. You know what confuses me most about the scriptures? God who he is, what he wants from us. You know, we're taught, and we know, I I can write it out really well. I could probably even get it published. That God saved us by grace alone, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. I'm not trying to make it, my voice inflection makes it sound like I'm making fun of it. I just heard it. I'm not. I'm just saying that that's how it sometimes runs through my head. And, And when I try to live it, I switch sort of into a different mode that believes it, but kind of walks through life wondering how I can do it better. What can I give back? Uh, This 
morning is a perfect example. Who am I to be up here this morning talking to you guys? Oh my goodness. Whoa, don't do that again. Note to self. <laughs> yeah, like hopefully you'll all get to know me and I'm kind of an open book. I know this church is really into the Enneagram. On the Enneagram, I'm an eight, <laughs> so watch out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this sweet little demeanor is a cover. Um, yeah, so there's going to be tons you're going to get to know me and hopefully you're going to think, wow, okay, if God can use her, then me too. But what is it about God and his expectations for us? That, and not even what is it about, what are they? Who is he and how do we fit in with that in a place that isn't just something theologically that we can speak, but something that we can live? And um, one of my favorite parts about studying the scriptures, and I'll be honest, I'm an Old Testament fanatic. I could talk about nothing else and be just fine. I am not the most popular person at a dinner party. <laughs> um, most people are much more interested in other topics than I have one. <laughs> Hebrew, Old Testament, and bragging on my children. Probably the reverse order would have been better. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but the reason that I love the Old Testament is that I see the same truth that I was taught in the New Testament with brand new illustrations. And I am the kind of person that needs lots and lots of examples. And I need to be hit by the truth over and over in fresh new ways. And this actually happened for me a couple of weeks ago. If you guys, you probably know this, I don't know who's new here and who isn't because I don't get up this early. Have I said that? Um, but most of you probably know that Mosaic is doing a reading plan. And um, there's these little cards, they're available out at that table. I know that because I had to find one this morning. And um, throughout the week, they have a reading plan that will get us through at least most of the scriptures in a year. And what the teaching team and the preaching team has been doing is um, preaching on these passages that we've covered. So in getting ready for this and, well, in making Mosaic my church home, I've started reading through these passages. And two weeks ago, so I might be a week off, but um, two weeks ago, I got to, I was so excited because I got to read my favorite passage. One of my, I have a million favorite, one of my favorite passages, Psalm 51. I've studied it. I teach it every year in second year Hebrew. Uh, it's right back to back with Psalm 52. Also studied it, love that one, teach it every year. But I've never read them together. I teach them in different contexts. And I saw something really cool for the first time, hadn't seen it in this setting, that helps answer those questions that I'm constantly struggling with. Who is God and how does he relate to us? What does he want from us? What do we have to give back? And it's in, in a really encouraging way. So I want to go through and I want to walk through that with you right now. We're going to read from Psalm 51 and we're going to read from Psalm 52. We're not going to do it quite in that order because I want to set this up for you just a little bit. Um, I'm imagining when I say those Psalms, 51 and 52, you kind of feel like I do when Tim tells me, oh, I'm going to preach on Acts 10. I'm like, yay, good. <laughs> okay. Um, you're probably like that with the Psalms, I'm going to guess, and it's okay. <clears throat> psalm 51 is a psalm about King David, 
Hold on, I want to back up just a minute. I'm getting too excited and too into the passage. Before I go there, I want to tell you what you're looking for, okay? And how I'm going to, how I'm going to show you what I saw in the text. These Psalms, 51 and 52, are back to back. They're both written, they come out of times in David's life when he, um, well, that we have accounted for in the scriptures. They're both about two separate individuals. David's writing them, but one, the first one he's writing about himself, something that happened in his life. Let's just put it bluntly, the biggest screw up he ever made. This is the whole Bathsheba. Hopefully you know the story so I don't have to go too far into it because it just makes me sick. It's either adultery, sorry, when white evangelical males preach on it, they call it adultery. When white evangelical women look at it, we go, oh my gosh, rape. Hello, he's the king of Israel and he says, you're pretty, I want you, come here. What's she going to do? So, yuck. And then he finds out that she's pregnant and he tries to cover his tracks and he has her husband come home from the war where he's off fighting and the husband's amazing. If you want to see the picture-perfect soldier guy, read about her husband. He's amazing. And, um, you know, he won't even go home to his wife because his people are in the field and he... Uh, David trusts him so much that when he has to come up with a backup plan to get this guy out of the picture, he sends the soldier with a sealed envelope. David knows he won't open it up, and inside are the instructions for the soldier's death. What a jerk boss, right? Yuck. And then he sends him off. So he's, he's guilty of lying, manipulating, using his power, rape, and murder. That's guy number one. Guy number two that we're going to read about in Psalm 52, David's talking about another guy, Doag. He's probably not as popular with us, although I don't know why. I love his name. Um, it's like you're slurring the word dog, you know, jerk, dog, Doag. Anyway. At one point, I have a lot of fun when I read the Old Testament. Anyway, uh, at one point in David's life, he's running from Saul. Does all this sort of ring a bell? Are we like, okay, I don't know the audience that well. So he's running away from Saul because Saul's the current king. David's going to be the future king. And he is going to, he wants to, Saul wants to kill David because he's jealous because David's going to be the future king. And I don't know, Saul's crazy. So, um, David's sneaking away from him, and he goes, and he shows up at this, I don't know, temple. He comes and sees all these priests, and he comes into the temple, and he says, he he has to pretend because he's on the run, and he says, "Um, I'm here. I'm doing a mission on behalf of Saul, which is a lie. I don't know if it's like a sinful lie. I don't know. It's just a lie, and um, my men are waiting back there. He has no and we're all starving. We didn't have time to pack. I don't have weapons or anything. Can you help me out? It was such an urgent matter, and Saul sent us so quickly that we had no time. And the priest is like, sure, yeah, here, we have this bread, and we have this sword. In fact, the sword kind of belongs to you anyway. It's the one you used when you killed Goliath and chopped off his head. So I guess you can have that. 
And David says, great, thank you so much. Eats, takes the sword and goes. And then later, Saul hears, because Doeg tattles. Doeg is staying loyal to King Saul. I guess that's not a bad thing. He tattles, he goes back to Saul and he says, hey, David's been there. So they all go, David and all his soldiers that he takes at the time, go and go to the priest at the place that's called Nob. And another great name, by the way. Who names their city? Nob. Anyway, so they go in there. And uh, sorry, I got distracted my own, by my own <laughs> enjoyment of the text. Uh, okay, he goes there and he says, you know, what is this I heard? You helped David out. We're sworn enemies. He's running away from me. This is called treason. And the priest says, What? He's not with you. He told me he was with you. I only gave him all this stuff because I thought I was serving you. And Saul believes him, but doesn't care. And so he looks around at his soldiers and says, kill him, kill him. And the soldiers look and they're like, no way. I know you're the king. I'm paraphrasing. I know you're the king and all, but we're not killing priests. Mm -mm. They didn't intend to do this. They're righteous, holy men. No. And Doeg goes, I will. Have you ever had that like snotty little sibling that always jumps in and does the right thing when you're getting in trouble just to, you know, look, I'm the better one. Yeah, that's Doeg here. That's the prettiest I can paint him because what he's going to do is then kill all 80 of these priests and then he goes out into the village and he kills the villagers too, just to show his fervent zeal for Saul. Now, from our perspective, Doeg, dog, gross, you just killed 80 priests. From his perspective, I'm obeying the king. I'm on his side. This is an act of warfare in some twisted, perverted sense because that's not how warfare is run, but okay. So what you basically have is two men that are going to be spoken about in these psalms and they're going to be, um, the psalm is going to spotlight the worst moments in their lives. And the worst moments in their lives are pretty parallel. They're both murderers. They're both vicious. I don't know which is worse. I guess killing 80 men, rape, adultery, murder, sending your own guy off to stages. It's just gross. It's just gross. So you've got two Psalms back to back dealing with two men whose resumes are the same. And yet, oh, this is the other really cool thing about the Psalms. They both start by calling on the righteous character of God. And when they do that, they use the same word, which I spend all year telling my students that don't look at all the words in the text. Just let the story flow. So I cannot believe that I am standing here right now telling you that the linchpin on all this depends on the same word. Sorry, students. <laughs> but they use the same word, and that word is chesed. Most people don't know that many Hebrew words, but this is one that if you've heard of a word, this is the word you're going to hear about. Because chesed is not even usually translated fully when people are talking about it, because we don't have a translation that encompasses everything amazing about this word. You'll see it as loving kindness, faithful loving kindness, covenant faithfulness, steadfast love. It's the word that's linked to the agreement that God made with Israel that says, I will 
always be faithful to you. And when you're walking with me, I will always walk with you and act on your behalf. And when you're not walking with me, I'm going to make judgment sound really pretty here for just a minute. I'm going to go get your attention and draw you back to me. Yeah, (laughs) it doesn't always look that pretty. But anyway, that's what his covenant faithfulness is. And both of these psalms start by directing the psalm to God to say, hey, look, this is the piece of your character I'm holding on to. This is why I can say these things. So we would expect from that, at least I would, that the psalms would have kind of the same sort of feel or the same kind of outcome. And they have completely different outcomes. In one of them, you're going to have King David looking at himself, and it's, it's everybody, poetry is beautiful, wonderful. You can import all your feelings and emotions. It's like songs that we sing on Sunday. And if you import one vision and someone else imports another as they're singing this and you're visioning, nobody's wrong. It's gorgeous. So the vision that I see when I look at this, and this might be telling of my own personal life when I read Psalm 51, which I will read to you in just a minute, is looking in the mirror after you have just... I remember when I was a little kid, I got caught stealing a little trinket from my grandmother's house. I don't know what made me think I would get away with it when I pulled it out in the car on the way home and started playing with it. I didn't have a miniature little bottle with a cool little spinny top and a little glass prong. I can see it still. I didn't own one of those. The only one we had in our lives was at my grandmother's house. Now it's in my hand. Dad and mom put two and two together and I got caught. And the shame, I still remember it. I have never stolen another thing. I couldn't handle it. I'm not that strong. This is the feeling you get. It's like David's looking in the mirror and going, oh, I... I'm just dirty. Wash me, God. I'm just dirty. Help me. So he's going to walk through the whole psalm that way. And then in the end, the psalm's going to resolve because David's going to figure out the only... We sang a song about... I'm going to finish my sentence, I promise. We sang a song about this today, though. No other fount I know. There's only one, I want to say person, being, thing... Entity, there's only one chance, one way that that sin, that shame, that, that broken relationship gets restored. And that's God. That's it. And David gets that. And he's begging God to, to restore him. He says in the psalm, we'll read it in a second, bring back my joy. I, I, I want it back, that joy that when we're just talking together and, and I know I'm good with you, bring that back. And then the psalm ends on a note where, oh, look, now, I, now I'm okay. I know I'm a murderer, an adulterist, maybe a rapist, a liar, a terrible boss, <laughs> bad husband. You can make the list as long as you want. David happens to be my hero, by the way, but a lot of people I talk to don't like him, and here's why. I may be all of those things, and nothing changed about me, but because of you, we're now okay. And the key answer to that, the key reason for that, um, is all linked in with this question of who is God and what does he want from us? And I'm going to let it hang there for just a minute. All right? 
I want to take a chance right now before I go much further, and I actually wrote something else that's much more concise than what I could say up here. But these are the things I want you to listen for when we read Psalm 51, okay? Psalm 51 illustrates the answer to the questions I continually consider. Who is God? To David, in Psalm 51, God is everything. He's the only one that matters. David's going to say, against you and you only have I sinned. Don't over-theologize it. Don't pretend that David didn't like, also sin against Bathsheba or all these other people. But they're like, <laughs> I'm going to pick on my daughter for just a minute. It wasn't what I was planning on doing. Sorry, Maya. Maya's dating. <laughs> and they really like each other. And there are times that the whole house is full of people, and Maya sees only Nick. <laughs> yep. David's like that, only in the reverse. Like, God, I know all these people exist, but you're the only, that's the only relationship right now. You're the only one that matters. He is the only one with the power to restore He's the only one who can right the wrongs, even wipe them away, even if they're murder. He is the one who sets the rules, and we'll see in here, David writes this, that he is also the rightful judge when they're broken. What then does he want from us? our most natural thought might be that our first responsibility is to follow the rules he sets, i.e. not to sin, right? Yes, are we with me? Have I put any of you to sleep yet? No, I can't ask that. Have I put any of your neighbors to sleep yet? If you're asleep, you won't know, but you can look at your neighbor and find out if they are and tattle. Anyway, um, my thought all the time is, here's what he wants from me. I got to do this better. I got to... <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, I was not well. I had a bad cold. And I was praising God half the day that I wasn't sick because Jim and I never fight when we're sick. And I didn't want to fight and then come preach the next morning. <laughs> How lame is that? <laughs> yeah, because I've been there where we've had this big fight and I have to go teach the next morning. I'm going to go to school and tell you all how much Jesus loves you and that we can serve him by being great, I don't know, sinless, we lose our focus. So our first natural thought might be not to sin, but that is not the requirement here. David's murdered. He has nothing to give to God to make it right. Nothing except to recognize that he has nothing. It's the only thing. So who is God? everything. What does he want from us? I'm going to label it humility. But it's a, humility is such a weird word. It's the kind of humility that can only be seen when you recognize how phenomenal he is and say, I got nothing to give you. So will you please do it all for me? And God's like, It's 
so neat. I'm an eight. Did I tell you that earlier? You know what eights don't like? Oh, no eights in here? It's really clear what eights don't like. We don't like weakness. We like strength. And we like to be strong. And God comes in and says, you are, you're a strong little person, but I'm God. <laughs> okay? So you can act in your strength all you want, but just recognize that you're in a totally different class than me. And then ask me to go do all these things that only I can do for you. So if we'll pull Psalm 51 up here, I'm going to go ahead and read it. These are the, those are the themes I want you to see. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. One thing I want to tell you, you guys probably do better at this than some of my seminary students. We have a tendency when we read the scripture to try and make it something different than it is. This is a poem. This is a song. Did you notice when we sang that song earlier? I keep pointing up there because that's where I was looking when we sang it. <coughs> Sorry. We talked about um, washing you white as snow, and you do that with a fountain of blood. The colors don't even work. <laughs> but it's okay because they're two separate pictures that are like woven together to tell you how intense something is. So when you're reading this, don't try and like figure it all out or anything like that. Just let there be one picture after another that hits you. And each picture is another picture of either the agony or the helplessness that David feels or who he views God is. And they're all going to be just woven together and they're telling you the same thing over and over. Okay. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. This is that word chesed. According to your covenant faithfulness, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That sounds so theological. Do you hear what's behind that? Lord, I'm dirty. I'm so dirty. Please, 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 please clean me. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Like I walk through the day and everyone else is doing something else and all I can think is, oh my gosh, I murdered someone. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I murdered someone. Oh my goodness, my murder cost the death of my own son. You know, I'm supposed to be making this ruling or leading this army or plotting this map and this military campaign. And all I can think about is, oh, I just killed someone to cover up my sin. What was I thinking? My sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We would probably say it this way. I'm just bad to the core. Like, ugh. I always, it's not probably theologically correct, but when I'm getting to know someone and I want them to handle my sarcastic humor, I just tell them, just remember when you talk to me, there's a little bit of blackness in the center of my soul. I don't know how else to explain it. This is, that's what he's saying. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Like you wanted integrity and I went and did that. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. You told me how I was supposed to behave. I have no excuse. This wasn't just the folly of youth. This was 
I'm powerful, I should get what I want. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Like, it's kind of that shameful, like just, if you could just not look at me right now. Like, I just did that, I'm so sorry. And blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. We actually have a song that's really popular in churches where we sing this and we look at it like, oh yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. That's what I want. That's what David's doing too. But the reason he wants it is because he doesn't have it. It's coming out of anguish. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Relationship, I, I really want you, God. Sometimes when I'm disciplining my children, or usually it's not disciplining so much, it's encouraging. You know, I'll be like, look at my eyes. And they always think I'm making them look at my eyes so they hear me. And I started telling them when they turned 11, 12 years old, you're not looking at my eyes for your sake. (laughs) You're looking at my, my eyes for my sake. I need to see you and know that we're okay and that you're hearing me and you're not just feeling attacked. I, I need to see that relational, that relational connection. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See how the psalm's kind of taken a shift? And it's taken a shift because David's asked for something that he knows God can do. I was going to plug this in at the end, but I need to say it now, or I'm not going to get to say it. We know from the narrative in 2 Samuel what God said. Uh, When Nathan came and said, David, you did this horrible, horrible, horrible thing, there's a huge chapter. It's really hard to read because it's so broken. And then there's this one phrase in the middle. Don't turn there. I'm just going to tell you real quick. David answered Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin. That's it. <laughs> that's all it takes. So we know that's all it takes. And David knows that too. He may not feel it at the moment. That's okay. But he's trusting in that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered to your altar. I skipped a little piece in there, but you'll get the picture. That sacrificing and bulls piece, that's not normal to us, but what it's basically referring is to all these commands that God gave to go do this to serve me. But when you do that and you're not in relationship to him, gross. Do you know how cool it is to come out to your car and find like, I don't know, roses or a card tucked into your windshield wiper blade with a little note from your husband like, hey, thought of you. I have a friend who leaves me every once in a while a little sticky note. Nothing's on it. But just a little sticky note, it'll be like on my door at work or, and I'm like, oh, cool. That's really fun. That person was thinking of me. Do you know how creepy it is if you don't know who it's from? 
Yeah, that's how God feels about the sacrifices. You're coming and doing what I said, but like, um, inappropriate. <laughs> I didn't ask that from you. So the way that the sacrifices are beautiful is when they're not from a creeper, but from one of God's own. All right? So you can feel that psalm. Got to move on to the next one or I'll never get there. I love this stuff. I love this stuff. I love this stuff. Just wait. Psalm 52. We already gave you the background of Doag. Killed ah, priests and people and, and he did it all to serve his king. Go Doag. Like, I guess it worked out well for you. Got your name in scriptures. But <laughs> we, I have heard all of you chuckle when I talk about him. And that was really important to me. Because there's something in the psalm that literally says, the righteous will hear about you, and they're just going to laugh. Like, what were you trying to accomplish? You were doing everything you could in your power to make yourself great. You look around, you see the most powerful dude at the time, you align yourself with them, and you do everything you can to please them. Who cares about rules? There's no... and. And, okay, do you remember that part before where God says, yeah, yeah, you're a really strong man. Saul was king. That's really cool. Really strong man, right? Are any of us in here kings? I didn't think so. Good. I've got... Kings are elevated above us. Presidents, kings, athletes, movie stars. Who cares? He's something cool. And God goes, but you're a person. And you're not God. And Doeg has no recognition of that. So David writes a psalm about him. And what's going to happen to him. And so cool because he calls on that same piece of God's loving kindness. That you are a covenant God. You are faithful. In fact, if you're reading along with me, you can go ahead and put Psalm 52 up there. If you're reading along with me, and all of a sudden I'm reading something that your text doesn't have in it. Because you're in the NIV. Um, it's so odd. This is my best guess. I don't know why. But it's so odd that this psalm would be linked to God's covenant faithfulness because it's going to be about like, hey, you're going to tear this guy down, God. That they sort of manipulate the chesed right out of there because it just doesn't make sense in this context. Except that it does. So not a huge fan of that decision. So I put it back. All right, ready? Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? He's talking to Doeg, or about Doeg. Why do you, oh, sorry, NIV. The steadfast love of the Lord is all day long. Do you get what David's doing? He's pointing to this wicked guy and saying, don't you know who God is? Like, like when I stole that little thing and pulled it out of my pocket on the way home. Uh, only like a three-year-old could do that. My parents are in the front seat watching me. And yes, they're going to turn the car around and make the two-hour drive back and have me knock on the door and apologize to Grandma and Grandpa for stealing. And it's awful. And there, he's over here like, Doeg, what were you thinking? Don't you know the covenant God? He sets these rules, guys. Do you just not care? You, you just... You don't know who he is, do you? 
Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Okay, if the irony doesn't catch you here just a little bit that David's the one saying this, the guy that's like, here, bring my very important message to the front line. Joab will know just what to do with it. And it's the same message that tells Joab, take this guy that I'm sending you, go right up to the gates, and then when the artillery, they didn't have that back then, but is the strongest, withdraw, but don't tell him you're going to do it. Anyway, that's the background of the guy who's writing this. Sorry, I love irony. You love every harmful word, Doag. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at him, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. So to recap, we got two men in two Psalms who both committed the same horrible crimes. And they're both... Both Psalms are rooted in the same character of God's being, his chesed. So we know who God is, but the outcome's completely different. One of them just says, please give me a clean heart. Boom, and he has one. He doesn't necessarily feel like he has one, but he has one. And the other one says nothing. He's like, it's, it's, he just doesn't seem to know who God is. In fact, it says the other guy's arrogant. He's trying to make himself great instead of recognizing that he's nothing. Now, do you see the difference? Yes, no? Are we getting there where we see that it's important to know who God is to avoid human arrogance? Have you ever seen like a two-year-old kind of stomp their foot at you when you tell them to do something? Those are the moments it's hardest to parent because they're hilarious. (laughs) Do you know who you are? That's what God is saying here. And then the psalm's going to take a shift, and David's going to say, guys, this that that piece we've been talking about now for, I don't know, 30, 35 minutes, that's what David's been trying to tell you. Because he's going to say in verse 8, but I am like an olive tree flourishing in the house of the Lord. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what you have done. In your name I will hope, for your name is good. I will praise you in the presence of your saints. Why can David say something different? Because he knows who God is. God is absolutely everything. It's not just that he's sufficient. He's like literally otherworldly. He's God. He's in an entirely different class. And David, see, these things are so hard to teach because I want to say, has nothing to bring him. But he does. It's just they're not on the same plane. And the only thing, it doesn't matter if David sinned. doesn't matter if David feels shame. The only thing that changes their situation the picture of God and his relationship with the entire world, 
the whole gospel message, the thing we talk about when we talk about the cross, the thing we talk about when we talk about being washed whiter than snow, the thing in here that says, hey, God, do this for me, and then I can go teach other people about you. All of that is summarized by, or is, uh, summarized is the wrong word I want. I want, we get to participate in that. Like, that's all for us. All we have to do is know that we can't do it. And acknowledge the one who can. That's it. I remember, and, and with this I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close, because uh, I fear that maybe I've shown you what I've wanted to show you, and it's really exciting. Like for me, I just go, oh my goodness, I see God's grace again in a new and different way. And I love it. But even if it sounds good, like, what does that look like in our messy lives? I'm going to kind of assume that none of you in here are murderers. It's not always the case, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I can tell you I'm not. How's that? But that doesn't keep me from constantly wondering, you know, God, am I getting this right? God, am I getting this wrong? God, what if I don't feel forgiven? Does that mean I then haven't accepted your forgiveness? And all that sin and shame stuff that stands in our way in a messy, broken, ugly world. I'm going to tell you, we are a whole lot more scared. Don't know if that was proper grammar. A whole lot scareder? Who knows? We are more bothered by our sin. More obsessed with it than God is. He just looks at us and says, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I've known from the beginning. But do you know that I can take care of it? And will you just stop trying to do this on your own and let me? So that then we can just enjoy. Have you ever, I'm a mom, you can tell. Have you ever had like discord with your child and then they're just still upset by it all day and you're like, it's over. I'm not mad at you anymore. It's good. Rabbit trails, so many rabbit trails, stopping, stopping, raining it in. Do you understand this picture of who God is? He's absolutely other than us. And he has chosen to reach out to us and say, hey, I am this incredible thing. And if you just are willing to be who you are, a human who happens to be pretty cool because I made you, but certainly not divine, then you can walk with me. And, and you can take advantage of all the things that I am. I'm great. Come be with me. It's a beautiful picture. So beautiful, I still can't quite wrap my mind around one great sentence to sum it up. But I hope you can at least see it. We're going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to worship this God who asks nothing from us, except that we know who he is. And let him be God. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so deeply for who you are for your patience with our stammering through these simple, simple concepts that are so hard for us. It is so hard to be told, you can't do anything. 
Now go do that, nothing. It's just, it's hard for us. And Lord, thank you that you are patient with us even when it's hard for us. Thank you for who you are and your constant pursuit of relationship with us. In your name we pray, amen.